Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today's topic is understanding Conrail with my friend, Brian Gorton. How's it going, Brian? It's going great, Joe. Thank you so much for having me. I am very excited about this topic and having you on my podcast. So please introduce yourself and your company. Awesome. My name is Brian Gorton, and I'm the president and chief operating officer for Conrail. And uh, Conrail is a a third-party, basically, delivery company for our two parents, the Norfolk Southern and the CSX. And it's going to be really exciting to tell you all about it. Yeah. You know, when you, when your PR people came and said, Hey, could you talk to Brian? I was like, uh, yeah, sure. And then as I, over time, I started looking, I was like, what is Conrail? I was like, is that Amtrak? I was like, and I think I'm probably like a lot of people in transportation and logistics where you go, I don't really understand the rail very well. And I'm hoping, and I, I especially don't understand all the, the things that happened in your history. I mean, you guys have a unique history and hopefully you can cover that. But I think if you're listening saying, what unique history. We'll get to that in just a minute, but I think it's fascinating history. But first, I want to hear about your fascinating history. Tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Yeah, Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you got the top job. All right. Assuming well, you, I'm assuming you had to work your way up to the top. A, a little bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> matter of fact, it's uh, it's it's been a real interesting career and uh, one that has been very rewarding for me and my family. I really started out on the ground level. I actually started on a short line railroad right out of high school in 1985 with a small railroad called the NYS and W Railroad and their track department. What is a short line railroad? Yeah, so a short line was, it's not a class one. And it's just basically, it's it's a smaller railroad itself that is basically does not have the volume or the track mileage that a larger class one, like a Union Pacific, BNSF. So what's the difference, like a short line? How how many miles of track? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it could vary. I mean, it could be anywhere from a short line could be 10 miles to uh, 1,300 miles, you know, and, and even greater than that. But they don't have the volume, nor do they have basically the equipment like one of the larger railroads, which who owns Conrail. And I'll explain that in a little bit, the CSX and Norfolk Southern. But yeah, so I, I hired out, um, started with them. It was supposed to be a summer job. It's been an awful long summer. So it's, uh, and then 1987, I had the opportunity to come over to Conrail and I became a brakeman, which is basically a ground person on the ground that uh, puts the trains together. I worked my way up to a locomotive engineer where I was able to, to drive the trains and that was very rewarding. And then I took an opportunity to go into management. So I started out as an assistant train master, then a train master, worked my way up to superintendent. And in 1998, and I'll get into that a little bit with the merger with the UP, or I'm sorry, with uh, Conrail, with the CSX and Norfolk Southern, I went to the Union Pacific for, for about 23 years, as, and I was a general manager on the Gulf Coast. In April this year, they called me up and asked me if I'd be willing to come back and, and run Conrail as so, their president. So where did you grow up? Did you grow up on the East Coast? I did. I grew up in upstate New York, a small town outside of Utica called New Hartford, New York, and was born and raised there. Never thought I'd leave upstate New York. And uh, I've been all over the country since that time. So as a kid, you play sports, you get part-time jobs? I, I did. Yeah. I, I played baseball. I played football. I seem like I've been hustling forever. If I wasn't mowing lawns or shoveling driveways, I was pushing carts at a grocery store, doing something to make a dime. 
Yeah, and that's nice. I always think that people who are successful did all that stuff. And then as soon as you get successful, you say, oh, no, I don't want my kids to have to do that. And I always think, no, your kids should do that. So they can be successful. That's exactly right. I said, hey, you know what? If you don't work hard to earn it, then it didn't mean anything. So, so you started off again at the very bottom, at the bottom rung of this business. And when you became like an engineer, when you're driving a train, where do you go from? Like, where would you start? Where would you end? And how would you get back? Yeah. I mean, so what was interesting on that, I, I had a couple opportunities. I went from Philadelphia to North Jersey, which was North Jersey, like the Oakland. How many miles is that? About 220 miles. So how long that would take? How long would it take for you guys? About, about, about 10 hours. You know, so from the time you you took the train and then yarded the train in the north, and then I had an opportunity to go west, where I went from Philadelphia to Harrisburg, about the same amount of miles, and it was great. You know, and then once you get there, you put it, they put you up in a hotel, you get your rest, and then you work a train back. Really? So how many cars would be on one of your trains that you drove? Anywhere from sixty to one hundred and fifty. Okay. So we had trains up to a mile and a half to two miles long. So how many how many cars again? Up to 150 rail cars. So, and that would be all freight, not not people. Oh, yeah, all freight. Yeah, I, I never was. And we'll get into that a little bit. Right. Um, Conrail is not a passenger operation, but we right. do have passenger trains traverse our railroad, um, New Jersey Transit being one of them. Yep. I'm asking some basic questions. I always I feel know. like most of us are in the transportation logistics supply chain really don't know how trucking, I mean, how railroads work. We understand how trucking works, I think. Yeah. But um. So you, you worked your way up and then you came back to Conrail. Talk a little bit about that unique history at Conrail. And to tell you guys, when I went to uh, the Wikipedia page and you see predecessor companies, honest to God, it must be 20. Yeah. And this goes back, I, mean, I was we were prepping, this goes all the way back to like the 1800s. So you hear like the Cornelius Vanderbilt, these, I mean, they've upgraded, of course, but these go back. This is, in, this is kind of our country's original boom. It, it well, was, you know, I mean, it's got such a rich history. I mean, and to your point, it's, it was, they were built in the 1800s. And a lot of the lines that are out there today, although being upgraded, are the same lines that were built by our forefathers. And it's, um, it's really interesting. And so back, so back then, there was hundreds of railroads. And, you know, and it's a very competitive business. And over time, some of those railroads went bankrupt, but the customers were still there. So it's a very unique history, not only for Conrail, but across the entire rail network, how a lot of these short line or smaller railroads um, were all consolidated to these these larger railroads and Conrail being one of them. So basically, and it's, it's Conrail started on April 1st, 1976. It's a great history for us where there was numerous railroads, the Reading Railroad, the Pennsylvania Railroad, the New York Central, the the Lehigh Line. To your point, numerous railroads were consolidated and Conrail was formed. And that was when a lot of the railroads were going bankrupt. They were having trouble making payroll. And that's also the day that Amtrak was formed. So they separated the the freight from the passenger. So Amtrak Ah. and Conrail was born. So now you, but you guys are, when, when Conrail was formed, was it then made, was it always a private company or publicly traded company? Well, at first it was a, it came out as a company that was assisted by, by the government. And then after um, a short period of time, then it became a publicly traded company. And then they were solely on their own with their investors and stockholders. Because when I heard Conrail, I think I remember as a kid reading about Conrail, like it it was what I would not read, I should say. Same with Amtrak. (laughs) And it's just like, oh, yeah, 
And, and as an adult, I've always thought, ah, oh, Amtrak, I've taken it here and there. Not the greatest way to travel. And I know they lose money hand over fist. Conrail's not like that. The not freight business was successful. It, it so, absolutely was. And it is to this day. And so what's interesting, back in 1998, the Norfolk Southern and the CSX put a bid in to buy Conrail. And it was very competitive. And there, there's a lot of history with that as well. So they did do that and they absorbed the majority of Conrail. But the part that was left was North Jersey, Philadelphia, and Detroit. So there's a there's a, a government agency called the Surface Transportation Board, otherwise known as the STB. They actually protect the customer. So once they, the Norfolk Southern CSX was putting a bid in for this, the STB study, you know, stepped in and said, you absolutely cannot take over the North Jersey market or you'd have, one of you would have a monopoly. So now Little Conrail was formed. So we're basically, well, not basically, we are owned by the Norfolk Southern CSX and we deliver their goods to the customers and the customers still have a competitive advantage where they can either ship after leaving Conrail on the Norfolk Southern or the CSX. And it's really a great, it's a great deal for them. Now, do they pit the companies against each other once in a while? They absolutely do. But, and that's what the competitive nature is all about. So you guys actually would be considered asset based then you guys own actual rail, you own all those railroads, you own all those cars. Well, actually, the CSX and Norfolk Southern owns all of that, you know, and we operate that Operated, railroad okay. for them. So we're an operating company for them. You know, we have eight board members, four from the CSX and four from the Norfolk Southern, and I report to them. They approve our budget, they approve our capital, and they expect us to run this company and expect us to run it well. Yeah, you got to have that. What's that old saying? Well-run railroad or something. You always said there's so many old sayings I think about when it's that's. Oh no, that's what it. That's no way to run a railroad. Is that's a, that that's was, exactly right. My grandpa used to say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the opposite of what you guys are doing. So, where where is well? What what is your footprint? What all you right, so are, we have all of North Jersey. So when you think about North Jersey, Newark. I think of the York, Sopranos, yeah. That's exactly <laughs> right. So we, we have the North Jersey area in Newark, all the way up to Manville. On, and then we then we move, we have all that New York, New Jersey market. Then we have the Philadelphia, the South Philly area, as well as all of South Jersey. And then we move all the way out to Detroit, where we have all of central Detroit, the Detroit area. So you cover, what is that, probably... 40, 50% of the country in that, in that well, yeah, I population mean, wise. Yeah. So it's, it's, we have 1200 miles of railroad, 900 employees, and we have a, a pretty good footprint. And, you know, some of the markets we serve are probably some of the most competitive and fastest growing in the nation. Yep. Yep. So when I think of, uh, you know, transportation logistics, I, I, my first thought is always towards trucking. You guys kind of compete with trucking, but I think there's there's certain stuff that you guys, it's you more your sweet spot. What is the sweet spot freight-wise for you guys? You know, the, the sweet spot is volume. I mean, when you look at that, you know, let's, let's just stick with the intermodal at this point. You know, what we're able to do coming out of those markets, you know, we're, we're running these trains that are 14,000 feet long. And, you know, the amount of containers on there. So with, with one or two locomotives, we're able to move a tremendous amount of, you know, three to 4,000 containers 
that that are on those trains and they're we're able to move them in a, in a mostly expeditious way and not only that we're the most fuel efficient transportation mode are we the overnight we're not you know but we have the long hauls and we're able to get from new york to chicago in a short frame time you know within 36 hours and then all the way out to the to the west coast we move the freight and we're, we basically serve the midwest market and a little bit going out to the west coast so when you say volume, what kind of companies are, have that kind of volume typically? I mean, when you look at all that, you got the Maersk Group, you got One Ocean Network, all all of the any. When you think about big the shippers, <laughs> we're, we're handling their freight, and we have a great partnership with the ports, and it's it's been it's been a true success story. The growth of Intermodal and what part Conrail and the owners, the CSX, the Norfolk Southern play with that. Right. Guys, there's a little bit of a side note, but again, I'm, I'm forgive me, Brian, but I always feel like we should, well, I'm trying to educate, educate myself as, and hopefully my audience. When we were prepping, I talked a little bit about the container box, which is the intermodal. And that really didn't come around until the late, late 50s, early 60s. And right. we, we would not have global trade the way it is now without that box. You're 100% it, right. It reduced the cost of world trade and moving all that stuff from China or Asia, from Europe, <laughs> back and forth to the United States. And when we talk about intermodal, we got to talk about the being able to take it off a boat, get it through the port, and then get it on a drayage, then over, ideally, in your case, to a truck, right. a rail, I should right, say. Right on the rail. And then so we move all of that. That's exactly right. So if you ever see the operation of the port, it's very impressive. Impressive would be a gross understatement, how they unload those containers and then make sure they put them onto the, you know, and then we'll run the double stack. So when you see the train, when you put them onto the rail car, you know, they're too high and and we fill up, you know, those trains. And, and it's just, it's a beautiful thing as we're building those trains and right. moving across the network. Yeah. You know, my dad, who'd be very old if you're still alive, always talked about the hardest job he ever had was his dad was a executive at AMP and got him a job unloading boxcars, him and his brothers. And he said, just brutal. He goes, you have no idea how big a rail car is until he's unloaded it. <laughs> right. And he said, there was just, he goes, there was armies of people unloading boxcars and you'd be unloading it into a, a truck or into a warehouse right. so it could be moved again and again and again. Yeah. Now we take it for granted. Something's loaded in China and the next time it's unloaded, is it a warehouse or a factory? It's exactly right. And and it's and it's days. I mean, it's not, you know, like days in the past when it's not months to get them across. Obviously, today right. might be a little different story with our supply chain issue. But I mean, it's amazing how quick it can go from China to the shelves of our grocery stores. So you guys don't, you're not picking up on the West Coast. You're picking up on the East Coast. That's who you That's guys are, right? That's so how, how is, I know everybody sees the news and sees or is dealing with it directly, the problems on the West Coast at the port. Now, what ports are on the East Coast? Uh, well, you have GC, uh, you have GCT. What is that? Global, that's global transit there. You know, so we have that. Then you have MMR. Well, where are those places? The, those, I'm sorry. The, yeah, all in basically in North Jersey. So if you look at the Newark area, the Newark Bayonne area, and then across into New York to Staten Island, that's where the majority of your major, major ports are. So are these are these ports owned by the cities or are they own privately or are they combination of? A combination of. So, I mean, so when you look at that, we deal with the port in New York and New Jersey, and they're basically the referees per se. And they also get paid a handsome um, sum 
to help facilitate those ports. And but most of them are they're private entities and they report to the port, the port of New Jersey and New York. So how many ports are there then out there? Four that we serve. Right. And so the stuff that's coming in there normally is not from Asia. Is it now some of that stuff coming? What percent yeah. now? I mean, just yeah, I, I don't have the, the a very good percentage of that. Um, I, de- I deal with Sam Ruda, who runs the port. Uh, he's the port director for the for the terminals. But they've opened up their ports to some of the West Coast that want to land there. So we are seeing some of that, you know, coming through the Suez Canal. And, you know, instead of being anchored out on the port of, of California, you know, they're taking those extra couple of days and getting the products here in New York. And then we're unloading them here and then moving them along. So, yeah, the, the West Coast is having their share of problems right now. And the East Coast is capitalizing on that. So you guys aren't having any of the same problems that you're <clears throat> having out there. You know, we're, we're having a little. I mean, the biggest issue we have is labor. And that's in every industry right now, you, you know, trying to get people hired and hired quickly. And then also for the chassis and what the chassis are, is those are basically the frames with the wheels. The dredge. And yep. drop on the dredge. So um, there's still a, a tremendous amount of need for the for those chassis and then still looking for the drivers. Not as bad out in the West Coast, but the, the East Coast is having their share of problems with that as well. So I think it's the ILWU on the West Coast, right? And then uh, that's the Longshoreman Union? Correct. And then on the East Coast, it's what, ILWU? WA, but they're kind of the same. Basically, they're the same exact groups, a little, a little bit of different on the work rules, but pretty much the same. And, and the longshoremen, really, they're doing a really tremendous job. They're stock. being tasked, that's for they sure. They sure are, you know, and, and they're t- they're trying to hire as quick as they can as well. So, and, and you know, we we all on the podcast, it always comes up about the tr- the truck driver shortage and the and the even sometimes truck shortage. Not as big a problem on the East Coast, but it's still also people working in all the docks and all the warehouses. We have to unload these things. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, so, and every, everybody, everybody I talk to is trying to hire and trying to hire quickly. And, and I'm hoping that, you know, obviously with the stimulus money, it's not trying to get any political side of that. But as they've if they've have dwindled or certainly slowed down, um, I think we're going to start seeing more and more people enter back into the workforce. And when we were prepping for this, I mentioned this. So I know you're not always on LinkedIn, but you have a nice profile. And I was kind of uh, stalking it earlier. And I noticed that you went to school at night and you said you worked your way up from the bottom and in the railroad business. And now you're at the top. And I think that sometimes feels like that's not doable. feels like the guy who runs Conrail is the guy who was, oh, he went to, he went to Brown and then he got his Harvard MBA and then he was recruited as a director. And then, you know, three short steps, he's the CEO. You didn't do it that way. You did the night school, you did it hands-on. And I think we need more of that because who wants to be work on a dock? You, you, if you have kids, you know, say, oh yeah, they got a good job on the dock. Well, where's the next job? Right. What's, what's the, where's the mobility? Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And you know what? I think it's been a true benefit in my entire career to truly understand what the people on the ground, what they're up against, you know, so I can empathy, you know, have some empathy and sympathize with what they're up against, but also know what they're doing. So, and especially in the new workforce where you're able to walk out and say, hey, let me show you how to do it, you know, and that also builds a tremendous amount of respect from the workforce to the guy at the top that understands right. what they're up against. And it's been great. And I, I wouldn't have done it any other way. Learning from the ground up to me has been invaluable. Yeah. We have so many of these gig economy people delivering packages right now, which is fine. Great. It's just, do they feel like they're part of the gig economy? And this is just while they're going to school or while their kids at school, 
or do they uh, look at this as the first rung of the supply chain? I want at least some of them to say, I am now part of the supply chain and now I'm looking for my next opportunity. And I hope we can do that for the industry because I, I really don't think everybody needs to go to the Ivy League or get some top job and then do the, the intern thing. Some of us, myself included, went to work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I thought that was important, you know what I mean? And I instilled that into my children as well. But, you know, one of the biggest things here for me is succession planning. And when I talk with my team and we go over succession planning, I don't want to know just about the management ranks we already have. I want to know about the people that are out doing the work and, you know, what is their progression and are they interested in that next step? So I want to know that individual that's on the ground walking the ballast, what what, would he like and would he like to do something different and and move up and go, you know, and it's been truly, I mean, the railroad has been a blessing for me and my family. And it's, it's, um, I wouldn't have any other way. My son works for the railroad. I brought him on board. He had to do the same thing. You know, it wasn't right in the management. It's, hey, you're going to be on the ground. You're going to learn the job. And then you can work in the management as you move along. He works for the Union Pacific today. And I couldn't be prouder of him and what he's done. And I'd like to have every child have that opportunity. Yep. You know, we'll see if one of my kids, if my kids listen to my podcast, one of my daughters was uh, home for the summer. And I don't forget what she was doing. But then it was like, oh, well, there's only six weeks left. There's no sense getting a job. And I was like, yeah, this makes sense to get a job. And she goes, I don't know what I'm going to do for six weeks. And I said, well, there's lots of work to do. And so I, so there's a manpower office by my house. And she came home and said, well, they have all sorts of jobs, but they're all working in factories. Am I going to go work in a factory? I was like, why not? <laughs> and so she went to work for some automotive factory and did not enjoy the experience at all. But I told her, I said, this is the last time you'll ever work in a factory. And you're going to do it for six weeks and you're going to know what that's like. So when somebody says our factory, it's not just going to be this abstract thing in your head. You're going to say, I lived it yep. right out of school. She went to work for a vaccine company when they're making some of the vaccines and she's in procurement and she supports a factory. And I said, see, now you can say when you walk <laughs> through that factory, it's your first factory. I think that's awesome. I think it's important. I mean, they have to understand that, you know, our generation, you know, you see that where everything is just given to the kids and it, it does. Listen, I believe if you work for it, boy, that, that reward at the end is so much more rewarding. Whatever you're able to buy with your hard work, your blood, sweat and tears is, is that much more valuable than something that was just given to you. Right. Yeah. And again, I, I think we also have to just find a way to start helping people get up that that ladder from the from the warehouse, from maybe driving a truck, from driving Dre, unloading boxcars, whatever you should be doing. There should be a way that that, that hard work and that experience is recognized. And I think more and more companies are trying to get it because we're short of heads for a reason. We know that now. Right. Because right? not everybody who has a college degree necessarily wants to do every job. So we should be able to move people up. I couldn't agree more. And I, I think we have to focus on that as an industry. Yep. So switching gears again. So when we are prepping, we talked a little bit about, you know, sustainability and that's becoming more and more of an important thing to our customers, the shippers, the, the supply chain people. Right now, I think trucking is 5% of greenhouse gas emissions for the U.S., I think for the final mile, we're looking, that'll be electric. And I think we know that can be electric. I think when you look at uh, long haul trucking, that is going to be diesel for a while. We don't have 
electric batteries that make that work just yet. No, uh, it, 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 and yeah, and I don't, I don't see that anywhere in the very near future. Right. And, and you do see those greenhouse gases like we were talking about. And when you look at what the freight, and I'm not just trying to plug the freight, you know, the, the, the rail industry, but I mean, it's, it's a no brainer. I mean, when you look at what can you do fuel efficient wise, you know, when I thought, you know, thousands of containers are on these trains and there's one or two locomotives that's pulling it. You know, I think that what they say that you can move a ton of freight on a teaspoonful of diesel on a, on a locomotive. So, so it, it's absolutely the most fuel efficient. And there's also, you know, as technology, what we have is called distributed power, where we're putting lo- locomotives in the middle of our trains, longer trains, and you're you're going ahead and using the lead locomotive to talk to the other locomotives, we'd be in the middle of the rear, so you can run longer trains and more fuel efficient than what we're even doing today. Right. You know, another thing I'll throw out as a driver, dr- driving a car around. I love our truckers. I love what they're doing. We all need those trucks. But every once in a while, when you're going through an area of high truck traffic, that is not a fun feeling. And I don't worry that they're doing the wrong thing. I worry that us <laughs> passenger car drivers, and I've always thought, wouldn't it be great if there was a separate, not, not necessarily lane, separate road for them? And I said that one time to someone, I said, I wish trucks could drive on a separate road from the instruments that they do. It's called rail. <laughs> I was going to say, we do have a, an opportunity said, for them to do that. So, and so, you know, as we look to the, as we look to uh, the future, I mean, I like to think that we're going to do more with, you know, sustainable approaches like trains. I also like the safety aspect of it. Again, getting, I'll tell you, I drove back from Chicago. I was at a family party over in Milwaukee. When you drive through like from Chicago to Gary, Indiana, there is so many trucks and the only person not driving a truck and it's scary it's scary it, to have that many trucks on the road I, I couldn't agree more and you know and not only that and, and even though i'm on the freight side my wife and i went from philadelphia to new york the other day and took the train in it, there's nothing better i mean it's safer it's faster less congestion less aggravation for sure and it was nice just to get out of philly get off at new york go see the christmas lights you know have a nice dinner and come back to philly without all that other aggravation that you just mentioned right. with you know stuck in some traffic some you know it, it, it was a true pleasure so and it certainly right. saved me a lot of aggravation Yep. So, so let's talk again. I, I know I mentioned your sweet spot. What kind of freight? I mean, I know you said it's volume, but is is do you guys do like bulk? A lot of bulk. What percentage of uh, stuff goes on? Uh, you know, freights? a little bit of everything. I mean, so when you look at the the ethanol that that's moved and and the oil trains, some of the coal trains, but there are still some coal trains out there today. That's your large volume. And then, of course, we're, we deal with quite a bit of the chemicals. It's so much safer. And there's actually some chemicals that aren't allowed to be on the highway. They have to go by rail. So we handle you know, a tremendous amount of uh, that type of chemicals for like the Dow corporations, the Monsantos, the reagents. So we're a big shipper for them. You know, you just look at uh, Brascom or the marine terminals. Those, those are our largest customers, Tropicana Foods. So when you're seeing those right. large volumes, um, we're certainly the transportation mode right. of choice. Yeah. When, and by the way, when I'm talking bulk, usually when you're talking about bulk, that means the the product is actually touching the side of the container that's moving it. So that would yeah. be propane. So if it was, if it was moving coal or 
I've seen like rocks. I don't know if it's gravel or whatever yeah. the hell that's being moved. It, yeah, it, 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 it is actually in that bin. So it can move that bulk, bulk is kind of a sweet spot for you guys. I take it. It is. And not only that, you know, when you look at where we are as, as a nation and our aging infrastructure, you know, to your point with the rock and the base for these, for these roadways and the steel and, and all the materials to help build these new bridges, the, the rail's the way to go. I mean, we're able to move a tremendous amount of goods into a work location, you know, those raw materials to, to give us our finished product. Right. So let me ask another question. This kind of related to sustainability and also just points out how little I know about rail. You guys don't have empty miles in the same way the trucks do, do you? In some cases, I mean, what we try to do is we, you know, there are some loads that come in and empties that go out. You see that in, um, especially with some of the chemicals if they right. offload it. So yeah, we have a little bit of that, but you know, as our, our customer service groups get out there, they try to return the loads, but yeah, we do have some empty haulage or we call it dryage back to the origin. You're seeing some of our equipment being moved, especially if we don't have enough of the rail cars for the containers, we'll move some of those empties to move the loads uh, out. But okay. So, but yeah, but we, we have a little bit of that, not as much as the trucking company, but a little bit. We're knocking it down with technology in this side of the business, in the trucking business. I think recently somebody said that it used to be 30% empty miles in trucking, and now it's down to 20% or even 18%. And that will continue to go down as we get better with you know, where's the truck? Right? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and I think you'll see the railroad follow suit with that as well. Yeah, it's a little different business, so I I know it's probably not exactly the same. But do you guys spend a lot on technology for optimizing? Sure, absolutely. I mean, when you look at um, the Rail Safety Act, was also the positive train control that the rail industry spent billions on that. You know, to go ahead and get that the uh, every one of our equipment set up where they have the automatic stops, and you know, to make sure that there's no incident that the engineer is is adhering to the stop signals, and so we put those in. And then, like I said about the technology earlier with the locomotives for distributed power, you know, repositioning locomotives in the mid train and the rear train, and then not only that, and also with our our dispatching systems, we're constantly upgrading that. Our signal systems constantly upgrading that the grade crossing. So technology is on the forefront with the railroad as well. And we're always looking for that, the next mousetrap. Interesting. So one, one question, and I, I don't think you'll have the whole answer and I don't expect you to, but when we talk about oil, we still use oil here and not everything's electric yet. I know we've talked, we have pipelines. So we've had pipelines that move oil and then we've also shut off. <coughs> pipelines, and that makes, you know, again, I'm, I'm not judging whether we, sh- we shut off certain pipelines. And I think there's a certain segment of the population that says, cool, we're not using that oil. No, we pumped it out of the ground. We're moving it. And so we will move it either by pipeline or by train or by some cases ships, if it's going to other countries and uh, or by truck. So there was an article years ago in Forbes talking about all these four and it says, which one's best. And it was kind of like, well, depending on how you're judging it. And in terms of moving oil is as pipelines shut down, oil, I mean, train, trains, are they picking up that slack? They are. Pipeline shut down? They absolutely are. You're seeing a lot of that coming out of, um, especially the Midwest markets, North Dakota and South Dakota. 
you're seeing the trains coming out of there and also coming out of Canada. So they picked up a tremendous amount of, of that oil that was originally on the pipelines and they're moving that into the different markets, especially on the South side, you see them coming into New York. You're also seeing them coming to the East coast and as far as the Gulf coast. So those trains are moving from the Midwest or actually the Northern Midwest all the way down to those ports. That's crazy. And I, I, again, I don't know what's best. I think try to get the guy on who, who wrote an article years ago in Forbes, but it was time out when somebody says, what's best? He says, do you mean what's cheapest or do you mean what's safest for the environment or what's fastest? Or, and I was, and I was thinking, oh God, it's not that it's not an easy answer to any of that. But right. I do, I do feel I'd rather it be on trains. This is my own feeling just because trains are a little more safe than being over the road. <laughs> That's how I feel well, about I, it. I, could, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I mean, really on, on top of all that, I also think we have to have some energy independence. So it, however we move it, as long as it's right here internally, that's great. You know, you just hate to see us stopping here in the United States or even in Canada and then starting bringing the oil in from the you know, Yeah, from the yeah. You know, again, I think we all want the environment to be clean, of course. And so sure. I think we all want to move in that direction. Somebody asked me to sign a petition and I didn't sign it because I wasn't sure. And they said, I would want to sign this to stop fracking. And I thought, yeah, sure, I guess. And then, and I was thinking, wait, we frack because we want to make, get the oil from here. And I was thinking, is the, is the alternative to fracking getting it from the Middle East? And is the part of that mean continued military intervention in the Middle East? And I was thinking, oh, you know what? It's, that's such a complex problem. It, it, it really is. And I'm, and I'm glad you may mention that because really, I mean, energy independence, I think that's something that we should always strive for and never be dependent on some of those countries that we do business with. And like I said, not to be too political, but right. um, we, got, we got a pretty good opportunity right here in the States. We should continue to capitalize on it. And I just came from a railroad that we, we moved a tremendous amount of that frac sand into those drilling areas. And, you know, and I spent a lot of time with those fracking individuals and some of the people that were opponents to it, but um, it, it really wasn't bad. It was, it was yeah. good. They had, they had a good system. We'll figure it out again. I think we all, I, I, think, we I don't think there's, I don't think there's as much disagreement on the topic. I think even the most ardent oil man would say, yeah, we got to do better. By the way, I think the largest oil, I think the largest company in the world is Saudi Aramco. And I don't know if you've seen it, but they've got carbon capture now. I saw it in the Wall Street Journal, full page ad of them doing carbon capture for truck pipes. So we can capture a lot of that. And, and that's the future. So they're looking and saying, hey, we don't want to go away. We've got to come up with a way to uh, prevent ourselves from being uh, legislated out of business. And that's one of the approaches they're using. But it is interesting because the, all the supply chain issues we have, one of the supply chain issues we have is related to energy problems in China right now. And they famously, and if you go online, you can find this, they famously had a little spat with the Australians. And then they said, we're not going to do business with them. China uses more coal, I think, than anybody else. And they, I think they mine more coal than anyone else, but they still need coal from Australia. So they shut down big chunks of their grid because they wouldn't accept coal. And then finally they're like, all right, we're still angry with Australia, but bring those boats in. <laughs> so, right. 
So it's my I, 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 I saw that. And, you know, and they, they were shutting their factories down for two or three days a week to try, try to compensate for some of that energy loss. So right. I, I did see that. And uh, I think they came to their sense and says, you know what, we do need, the, you know, other people to help but, us with our economy as well. But I think on top of that, not only do they shut your factory down, but also they're building these high rises and they can't power them. So they power down and you say, I'm on the 45th floor. It's going to be a, quite a workout this week going up and down without a <laughs> the stairway because you know, I, didn't even th- I didn't think about that but yeah that makes it that that's it's created a lot of discontent in certain regions so yeah. anyway i know i'm going to lose you here at the top of the hour so we will uh switch gears here so please summarize a little bit or just give me some final thoughts on you know what what we need to know about railroad especially about what's going on over at conrail yeah, I mean, I, I think the the deal is, and and really to put a bow on this a little bit is the economy is growing, and the best way to move that freight is on the rails, and we're happy to do that. We have the capacity to do it. We build capacity to make that happen, and and truly, the railroads do build this country. Whether it be Conrail, Norfolk, Southern CSX, or the Western Roads, we're here for the long haul. Like we said at the top of the hour, you know, we've been here since the late 1800s. It was the Western expansion, and that hasn't stopped. And the railroads are here. And, and when you think about what we do with the greenhouse gases and the footprints um, and what we leave behind, it, it's, it's, a good, it's a good place to be, especially with energy efficient. Yep. It's good to see. It's funny. It, industries that you kind of think about a, a railroad, it's like, oh, that's a bygone era, but it really isn't. And it, it keeps upgrading. It keeps upgrading. And this, this, the intermodal has allowed all of uh, all the rails to kind of get new life. I feel like. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt about it. And, and that, that is growing by leaps and bounds. And when you see, especially during this time of year, you see some major companies that are dependent on the railroads deliver the good, the UPS, we call it peak season, FedEx. We're even getting some business from Amazon. So they're seeing all of those companies see the benefit of moving their products by rail. And we do it very, very well. Excellent. Excellent. So before you leave me, Brian, what's new over at Conrail? I mean, really, what's new at Conrail is, is um, the supply chain. You know, we're, we're working you know, hard to help solve some of those problems. We're still hiring. So I would love to have anybody that's interested. Who, do you, who are you hiring? We're, we're hiring in almost all departments. But right now, it's our train and engine employees. So we're looking for the frontline people, the brakemen, the conductors, the locomotive engineers. And we'd love you, to have you need to be trained. Is there an apprenticeship? How's that there work? Is. There absolutely is. I mean, we have a 26-week training program, and we, we it doesn't matter what your level of expertise is. You know, matter of fact, we even actually go after some of the high school kids. We bring you on board. We train you. We spend a lot of time. We invest a lot into you, and then we put you out there. But it's uh, it's a 26-week training program. And it's a job that you can have. And, and it's not just a job, it's a career. And there's so there's a lot, there's a tremendous amount of benefits working for the railroad. Yep. You know, it's a little off topic, but there's a, a singer, kind of a, I don't know, what do we call himself, but kind of country, but more kind of, I don't know, I think they call it acid country, Sturgill Simpson. And I, I heard him, yeah, I heard him talking and he said, he, he kind of became a, a musician. He was always a musician, but he, he quit the railroad to go do this. And I remember him saying, is, you know, it was tough to quit. He goes, because I was working the railroad. I had a really good job. <laughs> he said, I, and he said, you know, telling the wife that, you know, when you're 40 years old, that I want to, I want to make a, I want to make a break here. She's like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> so there are some good jobs in there. It's not just, and, and, and can you go and work at a railroad at 18? You can. 
Absolutely. Because with truck driving, I don't think you, and I think this is one of the challenges. I don't think you can drive a truck over the road until you're 21, which is one of the, one of the challenges in the industry right now. Yeah. I mean, ironically, I hired on on a summer job. I was 17. I turned 18 while I was working and it was in the fall and I decided, you know what, this is pretty good. I might want to do this for a little bit. So I've enjoyed every minute of it. I started out like a summer job and, but absolutely, we're, we're, you know, I would take a kid out of high school today in a, in a minute and teach him the ropes and let him have a career where he, you know, he would be able to, you know, have a lifelong career and reap the benefits of retirement from the time he started to, you know, right to the end. And I would love to have him. Interesting. Yeah. And you don't hear anybody saying, I'm going to school to run the railroad. It's happened. It's just funny. I always joke about this. You never bump into anyone who says, I'm in college to sell insurance, but we have all sorts of people in selling insurance. I mean, it's a good business. It's not like it's not there. You just don't hear anybody plan on it. So it's it's good that you can jump out because, you know, I'm, I'm in the Detroit area. There was forever an opportunity right out of school. You go over to Ford or General Motors, Chrysler, many of the suppliers and jump in. If you were willing to work hard, if you were dependable, you had a good career. Yep. It was absolute given. You would just move right on up. And that was possible. Not so much possible now. I mean, you can still make a good living, but you'll never get to what they were making back in the day. But really, the railroad does give you that opportunity. And it's not just people that run the trains. I mean, when you look at the railroad, I mean, we have every single department. We have individuals that build the tracks. We have individuals that repair the rail cars, the locomotives. And then when you look at the office, we have a complete finance department. We have a law department. You know, I mean, it's it's really neat, the different departments inside the railroad. Right. Your, your opportunities are endless. Yeah, Brian, the whole world is waking up uh, in 2021 and 2020 saying, yeah, I guess the supply chain matters, <laughs> you know, right, a, right. A, a kind of a vague, I had Jim Tompkins on my podcast. I think he's in his late seventies, I'm guessing. And he said, for the first time in my life, my wife said, I now know what you do. <laughs> <laughs> Guys written all these books, built these great companies. And his wife just says, now I get it. <laughs> now yeah. I know what you do. That's pretty cool. So anyway, speaking of any conferences coming up. I haven't, you know, I'm mean, traveling. Well, yeah, I'm just, uh, which, where, you know, I do do a lot of traveling within the network. And you said you're out in Detroit. I spent at least a week, a month out in Detroit, but everything right now, until we get some of this COVID issues behind us, it's either been virtual or, or non-existent that they've been canceled. So I'm looking forward to getting back to normal here. And I hope it's there sooner <laughs> than later, because I mean, you really do miss that. I mean, the, the working from home, the, not the conferences, you know, the collaboration, the teamwork, we're missing so much that helps build a team and helps build a company by not doing that. So um, yeah. we need to get back to normal sooner than later. Yeah. It, it seems like every time we just about there, we get back to a, another, know, another variant. Yeah. Yeah. Another right. variant. God, you know, variant wasn't something we said very often until this last year or so. Brian, what I'll do is I'll put a link to your company and I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, although you probably aren't easy to reach there. <laughs> so I, I, um, I'm, I'm going to be more diligent and get on there a little yep, more. Often, but but I'll, I'll make sure. I'll make sure we get some links from you and uh, so people can reach out and talk to you and your team over at Conrail. I really enjoy that. And I sure enjoyed the conversation, Joe. This has been a true pleasure and you're doing a great job on your podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And appreciate all of you listening to my podcast. Thank you very much for your support. Until next time, Onward and Upward. 
You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.